Uh, I love being a college minister because uh, what that means is that I get to exist with you guys in this four or five year period um, where you're making huge decisions about your life. You're thinking on your own outside of your parents and outside of kind of your uh, childhood authority structures. You're, you're living and making decisions for yourself. And that always includes lots of change. And one of the changes that comes in that for some people are, uh, are relationships. And, and you come and you meet a guy or a girl and, and things uh, are like fireworks. And, and it's really exciting on the front end. And you stay up until 5 a.m. And, and you come back and you talk about how you have all these things in common. And you're like, oh, my gosh, he likes to shop. He likes Starbucks. He doesn't want to drive a minivan either. Um, you know, it is just amazing. And he's so amazing. And, and guys do this too. Guys go back to their apartment and uh, their roommate's like, hey, where you been? It's like, hanging out. Oh, with who? Girl. Well, who is it? Meg. Well, what? Not, nobody, no, there's multiple Megs. What's she like? She's pretty cool, I guess. Right, but that's the equivalent of the girls like, oh my gosh, she's so amazing. He's so wonderful. It, that's the same girl. So if a guy says you're pretty cool, that's like the best case scenario. Um, so last week we started this four-week uh, study in the book of Ruth. And uh, last week we saw kind of the setup and we saw the juicy details about Ruth's life, about Naomi's life and the setting that they were in. And tonight... We meet Boaz, and y'all, he's so amazing. He's so amazing. He really is. He, he is an amazing man, and I, I'm not even going to qualify that. But as I said last week, this story of Ruth, it, it is a love story about Ruth and Boaz, yes. But it is a, a piece in this bigger overarching narrative story of the scripture that is about God's relentless pursuit of a bride for his son, Jesus. And so, yes, we see Boaz as an amazing man, but Boaz points us to an even more amazing man. His name is Jesus. So let's read this passage and then we'll talk about uh, Ruth, we'll talk about Boaz, and we'll talk about Jesus. So let's look together. It says this in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field that belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, 
Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread with, with, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and passed, her, passed to her the roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over, and when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the fields until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Then she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this story tonight, we're going to see three movements in here. The first is I want us to see the chance meeting between Boaz and Ruth. The chance meeting, and chance is in air quotes there in case you didn't see me. Uh, Then we're going to see the amazing first date, which takes place in a field. And then we're going to see the post-date pillow talk between Ruth and Naomi. So here we go, the chance meeting. Um, I had a friend in college, his name was Ben Appleby, and um, Ben was the luckiest person on the planet. By the time I roomed with him in the fraternity house in college, he had already won like seven significant raffles or door prizes in his life. Like the call-in radio thing, Ben would win these regularly, and it was I don't get it. It was insane. Uh, He was the luckiest person ever. I, on the other hand, I had a gambling problem, quite an addiction actually for a little while. And I guess you'd call me rather unlucky. I choose to think now the Lord was trying to teach me something. Um, I never win anything, but Ben won everything. He, he, at the game of chance, he was the winner. Uh, Tonight in this passage, right off the bat, we see in verse three, this chance meeting. It says, So she, and she's talking about Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And it says, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who is of the clan of Elimelech. Literally what that says from Hebrew is, and she happened by chance to come to the field of Boaz. Now, we have to hit pause for right here, uh, for just a second. Because you, you need to understand about the Bible that the Bible is not 
a dry textbook that is handed to us that's just made for the downloading of information, like your physics book is. Or I was in Hardesty Hall um, during the tornado warning because I was at Subway with Muriel. And so I looked around. Everybody's got their books open because I guess there's tests right now. Are, do y'all, are y'all in school? No. Um, and so people are studying, right, and it's just disgusting-looking stuff on these pages. Just like, learn this. Well, the Bible is its a living book. And as such, it includes all kinds of things. And one of those things it includes is irony. It includes irony because I don't know if you remember last week, if you're here or not. Um, but if you're here, maybe you remember that God is just all in the details of what's going on with Ruth and Naomi. There is nothing that's happening by chance, not in this book of Ruth and not in this whole book of the Bible. The Bible lays out this explicit claim that God is sovereign and that God is working all things, big, small, consequential and seemingly inconsequential things, according to the wise counsel of his providence. There is nothing that happens by chance. And the Bible isn't even ambiguous about this. It is crystal clear. And so when this writer says, and she happened to be in the field of Boaz, it's kind of a leading statement to, to get us to see that, like, wait a minute, that, nothing happens by chance. What's about to happen? Who is this man? Who is Boaz? And so we see who Boaz is in just a second. But, but let me pause for just a second before we move on. Do you know that not only in this story of the Bible and what we have recorded there of history. But do you know that God is still ordering and controlling and providentially working all things in this world together? Now, if you're thinking halfway at all, you're going to realize at some level that 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 includes difficult things. That includes tragedy. That includes natural disasters. That includes very difficult things as well as good things. Okay, so, so there's tension there in terms of why God would allow things or why God would order things a certain way. But the Bible says he absolutely is. That nothing happens by chance. And so I want you to think for just a second about your life, your life right now, your life to date, and then your future life. Do you know and do you rest in the care of a God who is absolutely 100% always, always, at every moment sovereign and in control? And he's also loving and he's also just. He's also kind and he's patient, but he's powerful. And he's all-knowing. He's all of these things in every single moment. And the promise that's held out for us in Scripture is that if you are one of his children, if you have taken shelter in him through Christ, and Paul says in Romans 8, 28, he, he gives us this great promise of assuring comfort. And he says, do you know that God works all things together for the good of those who are called according to who love him and who are called according to his purpose? God is working everything for your good if you are one of his children. That's a promise. And that means that in the midst of your difficult times, the question isn't, God, why have you abandoned me? Where are you? The question is, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this difficult thing right now? 
If you're his, you can trust him. You can trust him with, with a future spouse or not. You can trust him with your major. You can trust him with a test tomorrow. You can trust him with a career or with the internship you thought you were going to have this summer that dried up. You can trust him in the, the, the tiny details and in the major ones. You can trust him. He cares. He's all in at every moment. So what do we do? If God's sovereign, like why do we have to do anything? Why isn't he just doing it all for us? Well, he calls us to be faithful with, our, with what we have. And so, look, for you at this point in your life, that means you get up in the morning and you go to class and, and you study some, not as much as some of you do, but you study and you try to do your best and, and you seek to love the people around you. So you love God and try to be faithful in your calling, which is school. And some of you have a job also, but uh, that, that's what you're here to do, and you're supposed to love him and love others. And he is going to take care of the details, y'all. He is. We don't have to be wound up in a ball of anxiety all the time because of all the potential things which could be God cares and he knows and he's sovereign. The second thing we see in here is not just that, that this is a chance meeting, but we actually get to see this meeting. We get to see the first date. But it's not really a date, as I said. Ruth is actually working. Um, she's industrious. She is out in the field trying to take care of both her and, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. So she heads out to a field, which is a, it's a very daring and bold thing of her to do. And she's commended for that. It's a really noble and awesome thing she did. And there we get it out in the field. She meets Boaz, and he is so amazing. He's so amazing. Let's see how amazing he is. In verse 4... We see Boaz for the first time. And, and the way the writer um, writes this, if you look right there, it says, And behold, Boaz, it's like, ta-da, he's here and he's shining and he's amazing. And he is. He is an amazing man. The first thing we learn about him is that he's there. He's present with his workers. He's not some absentee landlord who just who lords it over his people in power and is just in it for a dollar. He's out there with his workers and he says this. He says, the Lord be with you. And they call back to him. It's almost like they knew this. They had this chant and the Lord bless you and the Lord be with you. And there's a couple things to note about that. And the first thing is that, y'all, this is so striking because if you remember from chapter 1, this story is taking place in the time of the judges. And in the time of the judges, the whole country of Israel was going through this period of great apostasy and moral and spiritual decay. You remember the theme of judges, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was just this widespread abandonment of following God, but not Boaz. He is seeking to live a faithful life. He is living in unison with God and with His people. The Lord be with you, he's saying. He's a good boss. Um, I've talked to several recent grads from TU who have gone on to work at really cool companies, way cooler than the company I worked at out of college. And that's evidenced by the fact that their boss like, took out the conference room table and put a ping pong table in there. And then some of them, I can't remember, graduated three years ago, their boss brings in a yoga instructor one morning a week and like they do a yoga class together as a as a company in the in the break room or wherever it is now, whether or not whatever you think about yoga like that's pretty cool like a pretty cool boss 
two friends actually work at a company in town, and their boss, like, passes a margarita cart around on Friday afternoon. And they, like, have margaritas while they're finishing their day. That's pretty cool, right, in moderation. Um, And so... Uh, that's like, that's Boaz. He's that kind of boss. He is a great man. And he's taking care of his people. But he's more than that. He's more than just nice to employees. In verse 5, he comes out and talks to his head reaper and says, Hey, so who is this young woman? Who does she belong to? And now that sounds like a, a question of property. But what he is asking, what he's absolutely asking is this. Who is taking care of her? We don't really know her. Is she, a, is she a, a foreigner? Is she a sojourner? Who does she belong to? How can we protect her? How can we take care of her? And we see that further in verse 8 when he calls her and says, My daughter, stay close to my young women. Find your comfort in their comfort, in their protection. You can be with them. You can be uh, one of theirs. And then he goes further and further in the passage and he, he invites her in to eat dinner and gives her a place at the table. And then after, after dinner, after the meal, uh, he tells his workers and says, hey, she's going to come in and she's going to not just like pick, pick up the leftovers at the edge of the field, which was common in Israel. God actually told them they should leave the corners of their fields for the sojourners and the poor so that they could eat. But I say, no, it's... Not just that she can do that, like, let her come up with you guys in that first line and get the best of stuff. Uh, I have a friend who lives in Birmingham, grew up in Birmingham. His dad owns this huge, sprawling network of, uh, of produce markets, um, like a distribution centers. And I was talking to him one time about how they decide, like, which grocery stores get what produce? Is the, are they all getting the same thing? And if so, like... How come Aldi, where we go, like has terrible produce? You go to Whole Foods and it just like looks like a rainbow in front of you. It's three thousand dollars, but um, like, how do they figure this out? What's the pecking order? And he said that the way this works is that farmers will bring all of their stuff to these distribution centers and they'll sell it to them, and then they grade the produce A, B, C, in all these cases E, um, and so then. Uh, Whole Foods or the kind of the, the boutique high-end grocery stores will come in. They will get the grade A produce, and they pay top dollar for it and turn around and sell it for top dollar. And then Reesers or maybe kind of the mid-tier uh, stores will come in and get maybe some grade A, but some of just the regular stuff. And then, you know, it kind of goes on down the list. Ruth, in the, in the beginning, as with any sojourner, was given access to the grade C stuff. She's around the edges, But Boaz, in his unbelievable, amazing kindness, says, no, you come up here, you get grade A stuff. Everything that I have is yours. You can take it. This is for you. Glean among my workers. And Ruth responds in verse 10. Look right there. She essentially says, why are you being so nice to me? Or not, verse 9. Verse 10, Boaz says, I've heard your story. How you... how well you love Naomi. I want to bless you. Look, paraphrasing, God has given me so much. I want to share all that I have with you. I want to share His kindness to me with you. And Ruth's response says, you have brought me great comfort. And literally, again, it says, you have spoken to the heart of your maidservant. Even though she would go on to say, but I'm not even your servant. I'm not even that high in the order. You have taken care of my heart. 
She's overwhelmed with his kindness. Man, what a date. What a first date. So she comes back with Naomi. And they climb in bed together because everyone only had one room back then. They climb in bed and they start talking. Actually, I think she finds Naomi out in the city, but it doesn't flow as well. No. So he finds Naomi out in the city and, and Naomi says, tell me about the day. How was it? Uh, what was going on? And, and Ruth says, um, you know, Ruth's got this whole ephah of barley, which was like 22 somethings. I'm forgetting the unit of measurement. 22 of those. It's like she's got a lot of barley and grain, a bunch. And she's got leftovers from dinner in a styrofoam container. And so she shows up to Naomi and Naomi is just like, oh my gosh. Where did you go today? Whose fields did you glean in? What is this hall that you have come in with? And Ruth explains in verse 19, 20, his name is Boaz. And Naomi, ah, the Lord bless him for his kindness. Ruth, this this man is one of our kinsmen. He's one of our redeemers. Naomi's overwhelmed with Boaz's kindness. But notice how she says, he's one of our kinsmen. He's one of our redeemers. Remember that that Ruth's commitment to Naomi was a full family commitment. She said, I'm going to cleave to you, Naomi. I'm going to be your family. So Naomi treats her as a full adopted daughter. And this means that Naomi is going to be taken care of by this, the kindness of Boaz. But what's up with this word redeemer? What, what does that mean? This is absolutely not a throwaway word in this text. It is so pregnant with meaning. So let's look at it for just a second. A, a redeemer, uh, the Hebrew word is goel. goel. And, and the, the reason this is important is because this word is, it means more than just like a kinsman. It's actually, you combine it. It's a kinsman redeemer. Okay, so what does that mean? I get it. The kinsman redeemer had four duties with a family. He had to do four things with a family. And here they are right here. The first one is that he had to buy back. If his kin were sold into bondage or slavery, he had to go buy them back. Okay, so let's say that, um, let's say that Naomi um, had been sold into slavery in Moab or something. Boaz is one of her relatives as a kinsman redeemer. It was his obligation. It was his familial cultural obligation to go and buy her back. And whatever the going rate was for an old widow, he would go buy her back. It was his obligation. And that's from Leviticus 25, 47-49. I'm not going to mention that every time. The references are up there. This is biblical. Um, the second thing is that he was responsible to buy back the land that his relatives had either sold off or that they, had to, or they lost during a time of famine or something like that. He was to go and redeem the land and buy it back. Why? So that there would, it would establish wealth and provision for the family for the long haul. And so his kinsman redeemer would go and buy back a land to secure their future. The third thing that a redeemer would do is that if a female was a widow and has no male heirs to take care of her and to carry on the line, it was his obligation to marry her, which would then ensure her protection and provision. 
And fourthly, the kinsman redeemer would act as an avenger of blood on behalf of relatives. Now, you have to understand this. This is a curveball. You have to understand Israel this time, that, that it was a theocracy. It was God's people were a constituted nation. And so this is like, it's like a family police force thing, right? That they enforced God's laws as he called them to. And this is one of the ways that they enforced his law. That, hey, if, if someone comes in and, and murders somebody in your family, you go get vengeance. You, you are going to mete out my judgment on that person. Now, we have to note that when we get to the New Testament, this changes. And Jesus says, you're no longer my agents in that way. In fact, pray for your enemies. Love them. Okay, but in the Old Testament, this is part of what's going on as part of this theocracy. So it's a family policy, uh, police system. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Redemption, then, is the process by which something, uh, something which has been lost or alienated is restored by a kinsman redeemer. I'm going to say it again. Redemption is a process. The biblical concept of redemption is a process by which something which has been lost or alienated is restored by a kinsman redeemer. So in this picture and in this definition of redemption, we start to see some big themes come out. The idea of redemption, of buying back, of restoration, of restoring to the family something that was theirs. It's kindness. It's overt kindness and generosity and care. And Boaz is going to show that to Ruth over the coming weeks. We're introduced to him tonight, and he's amazing. But as, as, you, as I said in the beginning, as we've been saying, this love story is a shadow of this bigger love story that's happening in the Bible. And in the Bible, we find a bigger redeemer who carries out an even bigger redemption. Think about Jesus through the lens of these four things. Like Boaz, Jesus buys back his people. Like Boaz, Jesus buys back his people. He's a better Goel. He's the true and fuller Goel. Like Boaz, Jesus buys back his people from slavery. Right? Sorry, sorry. so he, he buys them a land. He secures an eternal inheritance and redemption for his people. The second thing is that he buys us out of slavery, not just physical slavery, and really not really that at all for many of us in America, most of us, all of us. But he buys us back from an even bigger and deeper slavery, that to sin. And then the third one right there. Like Boaz, Jesus gives us a place in the family. He establishes us in the family line. Through Jesus, we are brought into the family and given full adoption as sons and daughters. And this means that we are now heirs with Christ. This is how the New Testament talks about this. That, that everything that belongs to Jesus, which is everything. If we are in Him, do you know the Bible says everything is going to be yours. And that is great news. And that's exactly what it was supposed to be in the beginning. Whenever Adam and Eve, God said, it's all yours. Take care of it. Cultivate it. Make it amazing. 
Develop technology. That's the word cultivate. Make culture. It's your oyster. Have, the, have a field day. And in Jesus, it becomes ours again. And one day, someday, it will be our playground. It will be our eternal rest and home. <coughs> Excuse me. And fourthly, right there, like Boaz, Jesus will deal justly one day, someday, if not today, with all of his and all of, and all of our enemies. And look, the reality on this point is that, that some of you have had very real enemies in this world. You have had very difficult and even unspeakable things happen to you or people in your family. And what it means to be in Christ and have Him as your Goel, have to Him as your Redeemer, is that He is promising that He will carry out justice, that He will avenge any and all wrongdoing that has ever happened in the world. And that allows you to put down your guns. It allows you to to hand over your anger and say, God, this is your issue now. This is your thing to, to take care of. It ultimately allows you to forgive people and to realize that God is going to take care of the details, y'all. He just is. He loves you and He will be your Redeemer in that sense. Think about this. Um, <clears throat> There was a guy named David Ireland, and this is the last thing I want to say. David Ireland wrote a book entitled um, Letters to an Unborn Child. Ireland was dying from a, from a crippling neurological disorder, and even himself um, was, uh, was bound to a wheelchair, and his functions were going down quickly. And he found out his wife was pregnant. And knowing that he would never see his own child, and even... Um, <laughs> what that meant for his wife, that he was leaving her to to the care of their child on her own. He took up his pen and and wrote a book about all, everything he would never have a chance to tell his child in person. And listen to just um, a piece of this. He says to his yet unborn child, your mother is very special. Few men know what it is like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner, what it entails, what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage and put me in the car, take the pedals off of the chair, stand me up, sit me in the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back in the car, drive to the restaurant, and then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car and folds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me in the car, wheels me into the restaurant, takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner. And she feeds me throughout the entire meal. And when it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again, and reverses the same routine. And when it's all over and finished, with real warmth, she looks at me and says... Honey, thank you for taking me out on a date. That is a picture of what Jesus does for his bride. That is the, that is the story behind this story. It's a story of Jesus and his work for us to make us beautiful when we were unlovely. 
It's a story of Jesus' taking us right in the middle of all of our embarrassing and ashaming sin and failure to make life work and to get it together or to be the son or the daughter or the friend that we want to be. And Jesus coming right into the middle of that mess and saying, I love you, you have always been the love of my life, and you are beautiful, and I will delight in you now and forever. The story of Scripture, the love story of Scripture is that Jesus looks at you with honeymoon affections. And he says, wow, I I couldn't love you anymore. So I came to redeem you. I came to buy you back from everything you fear that may hold you down. And I came to give you an inheritance. And I came to deliver you fully. And finally, I love you. So the question is, are you part of his bride? Are you on the receiving end of his love? Do you know that love in a personal way? It's offered to you tonight. It's offered to you every week. It's offered to you every day. Receive Jesus' love. And be made right with God. He really is that amazing. The good news of the Bible really is that good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that that the good news is this good. And that in Christ we are accepted, loved. we We are doted over. We are held and and smiled at. Help us to know that, not just at at a mind level, but at a heart level. Speak to our hearts this deep truth of your love for us. Would you do that, Holy Spirit? Would you convince us of the Father's love and of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice of love for us at the cross? and the life that's ours in the resurrection. We pray and ask this in His name. Amen.